Welcome, everybody, to Radiant Others, a Klezmer Music Podcast. My name is Dan Blacksburg, and I'm really excited to welcome you to Episode 3 of the podcast. Today, we've got historian, symbolist, Yiddish dancer, and all-around deep thinker, Zev Feldman. If you've played Klezmer music, chances are you've played a tune or two that Zev has brought into the contemporary repertoire, like the one playing behind me right now. Zev is a really important teacher, performer, and scholar of klezmer music and Yiddish dance. He's also been around since the very beginning of the revival, participating in the 1978 concert that reintroduced Dave Tarras to the world, and releasing in 1979 one of the first recordings of the revival with Andy Statman, Jewish klezmer music. He also is really instrumental in bringing a European klezmer repertoire back into the scene, especially with his album from 2000 with his band Chevrisa. Alongside being one of the best scholars of Yiddish music, Zev's also a really important scholar of Ottoman Turkish music. He's been really instrumental at both Klez Canada and Yiddish Summer Weimar. He's also taught at places like NYU, the University of Pennsylvania, and NYU Abu Dhabi. Zev doesn't really perform regularly. He's mainly been researching. Right now he's doing a lot of research on the connections between Jewish and non-Jewish music in Moldova. But he recently published a book that you should all buy. Go out and read as soon as you can. It's called Klezmer, Music, History, and Memory. It's on Oxford University Press, and it's a really probably the definitive document we have on European klezmer music history from old Europe. Uh, I really can't recommend this book highly enough. I've been reading it, and I feel like each chapter I learn a new thing that makes me reevaluate what I knew about klezmer music. I really enjoyed today's conversation because I got to learn a lot more about Zev's personal history growing up in a really cosmopolitan scene in New York City, and also about how he came to be a performer, and really the place that Yiddish culture and klezmer music kind of weave in and out of his life. It's a really interesting story, and I'm glad to be able to present it to all of you. I want to remind everybody that you can pre-order my new klezmer album called Radiant Others. It's also called Radiant Others that's coming out on September 29th. You can head over to danblacksburg.bandcamp.com and find it there. I really think it's a great album. I'm really excited to release it, and I hope that you'll go over and pick up a copy. Lastly, uh, it would be really helpful if you could spread the word about this podcast. We're still new, and I really hope that we can reach a lot of the folks out there who would be interested in conversations like this. Please rate it and review it on iTunes if you haven't already, and if you can just share it around and tell a friend to check it out, that would be wonderful. All right, thank you all for listening. Let's hear from Zev Feldman. Hey, so thanks for doing this. I'm glad it worked out. It's, yeah. yeah, me too. I mean, there really was the, the you know quick window, but we made it happen. I mean, so it's it's interesting to be wanting to do a podcast of this as opposed to a uh, more formal interview. I think one of the things that occurred to me earlier was that 
maybe because I'm a performer, I don't have interest in sort of presenting information in, in an unbiased way. I mean, I know primarily I'm interested in hearing about people who are sort of in the like what we call a revi- the revival and figuring out what happened and as a way to give people some insight into because there's not a lot of not I, I mean I don't really hmm. know so mm-hmm. uh, that's sort of where I'm coming from at this well it's great let's say look at my own research I'm generally researching about Eastern Europe not sure. about not about America at all and certainly not about the revival or revitalization as Michael Alpert and uh, Mark Slobin like to uh-huh. term it uh, when we say revitalization, uh, actually, uh, it's easier to say revival, it's just shorter. But, but <laughs> right. they, they, they mean slightly different things. I agree. Right, they mean slightly. And I understand why Mark prefers the term revitalization, because, you know, there was some transmission. It wasn't as though this was had to be totally uh, rediscovered and, and revived from the dead. It, right. uh, you know, just a question of paying attention to, um, in this case, some older musicians who were still alive. Mm-hmm. And uh, recordings that were available. I mean, I'm not talking about them obscure, but even the ones that I grew up with that had been reissued or right. You know, and that was mostly Taras stuff, mostly right? Mostly Taras's music because yeah. he was he was the he was the most famous guy that made it out of that Eastern European world. Well, somehow he he was the survivor. Got it. You know, like he, for a variety of reasons, he could fit into a number of musical contexts within America. So he transcended, uh, you know, a narrow klezmer life cycle function, and uh, he read music well. That helps. Which most of them didn't, you know, right. from Europe. You know, he did, and uh, and he was very, you know, very methodical, very sober. Uh, people could rely on him, you know, which wouldn't be the case for all the klezmorum from Europe. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and he had a very evidently, as I got to know him, a very. Um, positive attitude and which by the way you hear in his music yeah that's another factor uh his music he would choose the things which in which the tragic element wouldn't be too dominant Uh uh uh-huh that makes sense yeah it makes sense so 1978, you and Andy Statman presented this concert at... Uh, well, first step is first step. How, how I and Ethel Rehm from the right. Center for Traditional Music and Dance uh, had a different name in those days, but it's the same organization. Same organization. How we sat down and uh, wrote a grant to the National Endowment for the Arts. Right. Right. So the, the deal was that... I mean, there's a background, which goes back several years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, part of the background... And actually, this background goes back to me as a musician, not to me as a scholar or researcher. Great. Okay, so that's another side. Absolutely. Uh, And the background, really, uh, let's see, I grew up in an immigrant community, you Mm -hmm. know, in the Bronx, West Mm -hmm. Bronx, which was overwhelmingly Yiddish-speaking East European immigrants of various types and from various countries, with uh, a small minority of Turkish Jews, speaking Ladino, you know, who had their own synagogue. And um, I was aware of, like, I was aware of my own community, of course, but I was also aware of the Sephardim, since uh, the the son of our rabbi, of the Sephardi rabbi, went to my yeshiva. Oh, okay. Right? So he invited me to, when I was 10 years old, he invited me to come to the Turkish synagogue, and I became the only Ashkenaz member. Amazing. <laughs> so you were the first guy, Turkey, only Ashkenaz, only Ashkenaz, Ashkenaz Turkish kid in that, in that Turkish uh, synagogue. And, uh-huh. and, and actually, uh, Murciano, uh, 
Ruven was actually might have been the only Sephardi student in my Ashkenazi Shiva. Okay. <laughs> so that's interesting. Parallel. Yeah, that is really interesting. Yeah. So, uh, and that was an important background material because uh, in terms of music, I was exposed, first of all, to davening because we went to an Orthodox old-fashioned shtibel, mm-hmm. uh, mostly Litvak. And, um, but my father was a Bessarabian, as we know, and uh, he liked to dance, and he used to go to the Yedenitzer Landsmannschaft, the Yedenitzer Society. Where was the Yedenitzer Landsmannschaft? On the side. Okay. And, and I was a very small thing when I was taken there, but I would see dancing and hear music, yeah. you know, of Klesmorum. And I remember better, when I was a bit older, being taken to weddings, you know, and uh, seeing my father dance and my relatives dancing. But that began to peter out when I was a teenager, you know, it just wasn't happening much, and uh, uh, my father was also a bit arthritic. He wasn't able to dance so well anymore. So uh, it wasn't happening, but at the same time, I had this contact with the Sephardim. Mm-hmm. So th- indirectly through them and some Israeli people I knew, I began to uh, go to nightclubs where I'd hear Greek music, Armenian music, Iranian music. Was this all in the Bronx or was it no, all over New York? This was, a, well, f- first I should say that I was going to church too. I was going to St. Spiridon's <laughs> Orthodox <Yeah>. Cathedral <laughs> in Washington Heights. Okay. Because I, I went to high school with one of the uh, choir, uh, choir boys, one of the what are we, altar boys uh-huh. of the church who was a good artist. So he invited me to his you church. You had a real Saturday, Sunday schedule. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Since I grew up with religious liturgy, you know, I was interested in this. Sure, sure. Know, and, and actually, the truth is, the Greeks had more professional cantors than we did. Ah, uh, at that point, At yeah. that point. And the, either sense. the Ashkenazim or the Sephardim that I went to, because they had people sent directly from Greece. And, oh, wow. You know, yeah. And so that was a revelation. Um and once I went to the, I was able to go on my own to the clubs in Manhattan. Those were, the Greeks, you know, were on 8th Avenue in those days, in the 30s. And there was an Armenian club in the village. So, um, and I got to, oh yes, there was also a club on the Lower East Side, which I went through first, which was run by two Jewish people. Okay. And, but they had, they had an Iranian musician. Wow. Who played there, a Santur player. And they had a, Palestinian-Israeli oud player, as I recall, and a Hungarian-American darbuka player, huh. who was very good. Nice. He, he was really good. And I was befriended by these guys and a Greek-American journalist who was an amateur musician, lived in Queens. Mm-hmm. And that's actually how it began, because I would hang out with, go to Lower East Side, meet all these people, and then get invited to people's homes and... Uh, I was just aware of more things going on, that I met young Greek musicians, Greek Americans who were learning from the old timers. And I used to frequent the uh, Balkan phonograph shop on 8th Avenue, which was owned by an Albanian oud player from Istanbul, who also spoke Romanian because mm. he'd been he'd been discharged from the Turkish army in Bessarabia. Yeah, and it's like <laughs> right. everything's been going on the whole time. Yeah, That'd so right, and through him I met a lot of the old time Greek musicians, including my cymbal teacher, Paul Imberis, okay. was a friend of his. And so you were always on this creative path. Just, it seems like, it seems like that was just immediate. Yeah, I mean, I was I was studying percussion when I was thirteen. I was a student of Ruth Ben Svi, who was a really good Israeli darbuka player, very okay. very methodical and very creative. Uh, who I met at the Hebrew Art School. Mm-hmm. Down on Fifteenth or Sixteenth Street. I love it. That's so great. So, what did you, and what a beautiful New York experience too. You know, just the most cosmopolitan 
and uh, diverse thing. Yeah, why be parochial if you have all this, you know, at your fingertips? I don't know. It's a good question that we could ask a lot of people, <laughs> people I think. <laughs> Actually, most, most of our, our my Ashkenazim in the Bronx didn't even know they had a Sephardic synagogue. Okay, so now we're talking, uh, you know, you were all this was your background, and you met, and you and Ethel Rain were thinking about Klezmer music or whatever you were calling oh, it at the well, time. I, of course, Ethel I met through my trips to the Balkans, and then I became a bit interested in Bulgarian music. Uh-huh. And I, since I was a percussionist, I could learn these rhythms very easily. Oh, so when I was in Macedonia, I lived with a family of uh, gypsy musicians for a while. <laughs> <laughs> right, and you uh, had been already completely steeped in odd meters and things like that. Yeah, I mean, I was, it, you know, at that age also, you learn fast. That's true. You learn fast. That's true. So I picked these things up. I spoke Turkish with them, of course. That was helpful. Yeah. The Muslim gypsies. And uh, then somehow, I can't remember exactly, but wait a minute, there was a kind of Balkan dance group in Manhattan run by a Jewish guy named Ehrlich. But you can be sure they knew nothing about Jewish dance or sure. such thing. But they did Bulgarian dance very well. And there was an Azerbaijani who was a very good dancer, so I learned the Caucasian rhythms from him. Mm-hmm. And somehow this came to the attention of Ethel Rehm, and so I was invited to accompany her choral group, the Penny Whistlers. Okay. And we went to a number of festivals together. Wow. I so th- so yeah. this is one of the things that I find is so interesting is the picture of the life of, I mean, I think, you know, whether you think of yourself as, as a working musician hmm. or as an artist or whatever, or, or whatever you think of yourself, that's what the picture was. It just things happened. You you put yourself out there in the world, you absorb stuff, and just stuff was available. That was one of the things that I thought because I hmm. you know I read in your book that you know you guys applied for an NEA grant. Okay, so you yeah. got a grant, but what did the world nowadays? If to people my age, hmm. it doesn't feel like there's lots of possibilities for this kind of stuff. I mean, to be fair, there's a lot hmm. less funding around, yeah. and uh, grants now are so specific. You know, if I want to apply for hmm. a grant in Philadelphia, well, certain ones are a little more open-ended. Hmm. But for big ones, you have to know, you have to have letters from everybody. You have to know every, every, where every dollar and cent is going before you even apply. And it's very difficult, especially for individuals. I mean, right. I mean, well, you Ethel, had the ball, ball Ethel was already in a nonprofit experience. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't have done it alone. Sure. So just the world of possibility, it seems like, back in the late 70s of doing something like this, just seemed very simple. I mean, obviously it was a lot of work, but it didn't seem it didn't seem like right, there were right. barriers to no. your success. No, I, I I wasn't aware of that. And Ethel, at the time, she didn't present it as, oh, we're just taking a chance in a million and let's see what happens. I mean, right. she thought there was a good chance this might work. And as it turned out, I learned many years later that the ethnomusicologist Robert Garfius, mm-hmm. right, whose name you might have heard. No, I haven't. Oh yeah, I know he's a. Uh, extraordinary ethnomusicologist mm-hmm. has worked in everywhere from Japan to Romania and Turkey. He's in Southern California. Yeah, he was on the board on the on the panel, on, on for, the that. panel yeah. for that. So that uh, I believe by late seventies he had already been in Romania. Okay. So he found this an interesting subject that nobody had worked well, with that's, before. That that does help usually for those yeah. things. Yeah. <laughs> so what was it like yeah. to do something that you basically figured out that nobody had really gone after? Well, the thing is, again, thanks to languages, right. very important, that I, um, I had a governess, by the way, I was a child, who was an intellectual from Kishinev. Right, I read about that. It's yeah, great. <laughs> who had very good Russian. Uh-huh. So I was aware of Russian as a cultural language since I was quite young. And in graduate school, I had to learn to read it properly. 
So I was able to just go to the Slavonic division of the New York Public Library and find the earliest uh, late Tsarist and early Soviet work on Jewish music mm. and read it. So I, you know, the earliest the earliest article about Jewish about klezmer music was written by a non-Jewish Russian, uh, Ivan Lipayev, called the Jewish Orchestra of Yevreski Orchestra, uh-huh. published in 1904. Wow, Petersburg. And I read that carefully. In fact, I copied it down before I could even photocopy. It was a brittle old journal. I, sure. I still have a journal where I hand wrote the Russian. Oh, wow. <laughs> and this guy was like, uh, he was not, the, the ethnomusicology didn't yet exist. But right. he was an amateur sort of trying to understand what this music was and who these musicians were. And then I'd already been to Romania twice by then. Wow. Now, why was I in Romania? Good question. Yeah. Um, uh, hmm. Well, at a place where I worked as an undergrad, we had a lady working there who was from a, a Moldavian aristocratic family. And so uh, I became friendly with her and her son, Sherban. And they, she wrote a letter to her sister in Switzerland who wrote to people at the, uh, at the academy, uh, the Institute for Ethnography and Folklore in Bucharest. So when I went there in 1969... Mm. So, 69. How old were you in 1969? Well, I was about 20, 19, 19 years old. And so this would be like on summer break or something yeah, like this? Yeah, summer break from school. Just go to Romania. I'd spent the whole summer in the Balkans. Great. That's where I met the gypsies in Macedonia. and <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's so great. <laughs> and I went to Romania, I went to Turkey. And when I was in Romania, I, oh, I met uh, Gisela Sulicianu. Uh-huh. who was the foremost Jewish researcher okay. who worked with Jews but also with Krim Tatars. Right? And uh, by the way, we had, in the Bronx, we had a Tatar minority. Oh, okay. Muslims. Yeah, sure. <laughs> right, that too, who preferred to live with the Jews. Uh-huh. And I still know a couple of these guys. You know? That's great. <laughs> One of them is a professor of physics at uh, CUNY Grad Center and is a very good poet. I, I saw him recently. So meeting someone like Dave Tarras was sort of just another step on this path that you were, had been on forever, it seems like. Yeah, by, by when I met Dave in the mid-'70s, I'd been meeting, you know, old and competent musicians from the old world for 10 years. Sure. So there's nothing new except that he was Jewish. I mean, and, and it turns out he studied in my father's shtetl. Right. When he heard that my father was from Yedinitz, you know, he was very happy. He had <laughs> very good times there. Uh, I, wish I'd, I wish I'd had the maturity to sit him down and ask more detailed questions. My impression, uh, and this also I, I got from talking many years later to Yermia Heschelis about what would happen when uh, a klezmer was without his own capella, mm-hmm. that there were wandering klezmorum who'd lost their capella because of pogrom, because of wow. immigration, because yeah. of something. And they would be hired as adjuncts. Right. You know, because there was a certain yichas that the guy was a klezmer. And again, he had to be not just any Jewish musician, but a klezmer from a klezmer family. Right. So you had to treat him with some respect, but you're not going to give him a, a fee like a member of the capella. Uh-huh. So my impression, and I wish I confirmed this with Taras, but I didn't get a chance to do that, was he must have been in that status in the Netherlands. At some point, he had sort of been uh, isolated. Well, he 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 fled the, the Russian Civil War. He and his wife well, Shifra fled the Russian Civil War. The Ukraine was a very dangerous place. So, uh, how he got to you know to Yedinets in particular, I don't know if he went there first, and cause he ended up in Bucharest at some point. Of course, Yedinets is a lot closer to him than right. Bucharest, so it's not impossible that he ended up in the north and then went to the south. And but while he was there, he was playing music. 
you know, and he was, and he remember he notated music well, so he must have written down a lot of what he heard. Right. So, and this became the basis, um, you know, because if you look at his first recordings in New York, he has a couple of beautiful chusetos. Yes. Which no doubt he learned from his family, who were Hasidic Klesmorum from Podolian, uh-huh. Ukraine. Yeah. You know, so that he must have learned over there. And after, after that uh, recording session, he must have decided that uh, in America, he was going to succeed more with the Bulgars and the Sirbas than with the Husserls. Right. So, and he was right. And he was right. <laughs> <laughs> later let's see now andy came through a lineage of a friend of mine he, his name was alan feldman and for a time he and i had a little duo where let's see we were playing we were both hanging out in boston at the time which is a very irish place of right course. yeah yeah so you've got to really know irish people uh-huh which we did okay we both had irish girlfriends oh that's why you're hanging out in right? boston yeah. yeah and and so we were in the in the irish pub scene which is the, the thing to do in Boston. Yeah. And, and, and rather, Alan, Alan Feldman, he was playing old-time music, and then he would learn some Irish tunes, some Scots tunes. And we were doing this kind of fusion, you know, with the per- I was playing the Persian Santur, which I learned from an Iranian uh-huh. musician in New York, and uh, Balkan musics and various improvisations. It was a bit more like what, like the... Jason Rosenblatt does with Rachel Lemmon. Sure, sure. It was yeah, more like that thing. But we were doing that in the seventies. Right. I mean, there's. It's so interesting, you know, whether you think about it that from that angle, uh, these sort of modern jazz guys who all learned Bulgarian, some Bulgarian music, pretty much via Matt Dario, mm. and um, you mm-hmm. have there's these guys yeah. who kind of came of age in the nineties, and uh, or you know came into prominence in these bands like Pachora and uh, Matt had his Paradox Trio, and they were playing. Some version of Bulgarian music as a way of like jazz fusion and fueling improvisations in the language that they were interested in. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember meeting people, you know, when I went to school, this kind of had just risen up and I found out about this. And then, I, and then later you realize, well, you know, people like you were doing it a lot earlier. And then Joe Maneri had produced, had made this one recording session of hmm. kind of fusion y Greek free jazz in the fit hmm. in like the early mid 60s. And it's really amazing and interesting, and it sounds so much. So I think this is something mm. that people come to a lot. Yeah. And um, and I think we got to talk. We're gonna have to talk about fusion too, and because it's an interesting concept in all this. It's interesting. I did that for a couple of years, and uh, we and I enjoyed it. There was some nice music in the end. I met Andy through through him through uh-huh. Al Feldman, 
and because uh, they knew each other, and he was a mandolinist, and yeah. was playing bluegrass, and he, I met him somewhere, and he at a concert, he came up to me, or he was introduced to me, he said he was interested in learning, you know, some kind of Oriental, Middle Eastern music. Uh-huh. At that point, I had several teachers, right? So I introduced Andy to all of them, and they all liked Andy. So well, he's, uh, he seems he's like great. He was probably very good at the time. Very good and and very sweet. And so uh, Paul Imberis, my Santori teacher. Uh, Simbolum teacher was teaching him Izmir, Smineka music. He, I was p- p- accompanying, uh, uh, actually, probably the greatest musician I knew at that age was Antronik Avrastamian, who was a Kamanja virtuoso, you know, the bold Kamanja. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, and he was playing a Baku Philharmonic before he came here. So uh, he, Andy must have learned tar at some point, the Persian, mm-hmm. Caucasian tar, either from him or from Zavulun Avshalamov who was a uh, mountain Jew, a Dagestan Jew, who was living in Brooklyn. And, uh, oh, of course, and Andy, I think, on his own, had come across uh, Pericles Chalkias, the uh, Greek clarinetist. So he, Andy was busy, and I remember I spent a winter, I was invited out to an Armenian nightclub in Aspen, Colorado. I love it. <laughs> right? By, by um, a Jewish... But I like a player from Brooklyn, who I've oh, I'd like to see again, Charles Rappaport, uh-huh. right? Who was then living in Aspen, and so he talked to the the owner of this club that he has a friend in New York who plays percussion and santor would be perfect for the Armenian club. So after I finished my coursework in graduate school, I just went off for the winter. <laughs> 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 Working in a nightclub. Oh, it was great fun. Oh yeah, great fun. And um, and meanwhile, Andy had. Uh, let's see, he had, yeah, before I left for the nightclub, right, Andy had asked me, do I know anybody who plays Jewish instrumental music, uh-huh. you know? I said, well, you know, Dave Taras uh, was a household name. My parents had heard him in the Catskills the summer before. We have lots of his records. Um, he's playing some kind of Basarabian music, apparently, you know. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know yet that he had actually been in Yedinitz. But, sure. but But okay, but he was somehow part because of Because it him. was from your family that yeah. you assumed that connection makes sense. Well, I knew, I knew from the pieces. I could see oh. that there were Bulgars. My father always told me we danced Bulgars back home. Oh, okay. You know, so I knew that if this guy's playing Bulgars and Serbas, then he must be somehow connected with us. And uh, so Andy took it from there. He just looked him up in the uh, union directory under clarinet. Lovely. Isn't that great? He called That's him so up, great. and uh, Taras invited him over. So while I was in in Colorado, Andy would write me in those days letters sure. about his progress studying with with Taras. <laughs> like you're playing, okay, you're playing clarinet now. That's cool. Yeah, of course he'd started with saxophone, and okay. Taras convinced him he couldn't really play Jewish music properly on sax, as we say. Right, so he got him into <laughs> into clarinet. And when I came back from uh, from Colorado, Andy was already making progress, you know. Yeah. And then he, I, yeah, I think at that point I was introduced to Taras. And again, it was so surprising coming there. It looked like one of my relatives' apartments. Sure. It was so familiar. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, this is the famous Dave Taras. It could have been, you know, anybody, many, many of our relatives in the Bronx it would have looked like that. I think it's a wonderful <laughs> experience that, like, lots of people end up having with this kind of stuff. So there's, there's a very clear uh, sense of, like, where you're coming from. Like, let's say we're up to now around that time, you know, mm-hmm. 78 yeah. And um, did you see other people making this music? And did you start to see... When did you start to see that this was becoming... That, that you were maybe being part... This was part of a wider 
for sort of historical thing that was happening at the time. That was years later. Years later. I mean, I was in San Francisco earlier. I'd met the Klezmorum. In the, in the mid-70s? Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. And I understood that they were kind of completely on their own. They hadn't studied with anybody. They were not... Yeah. Not competent to deal with the music. Uh, oh, see, yes. Nice chaps, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know. I mean, I was like a native from the reservation, right? These compared, guys. Yeah, <laughs> relatively. <laughs> so there was nothing to learn from them, and I certainly wasn't inspired by them. I'll tell you, actually, we you know what was more inspiring for me. Uh, I had been married in Dublin mm-hmm. to an Irish woman. Okay. For a number of years. One of the people from Boston. No, no. She was an Irish woman from Ireland. Oh, okay. From County Roscommon. <laughs> that was another Irish woman. There so, you go. So uh, through, through Siobhan and this background, uh, I was at, at the middle of the Irish revival or revitalization. And, you know, they still, there's still a link between the Irish in Ireland and the Irish over here. That, right. Also. We, we don't have that possibility no, we don't. anymore. We do not. It's a big difference. Totally. Right. So, yeah, you know, and I was, of course, I, I, by the way, I owe this in some ways to Alan Feldman because he was involved with Irish music even earlier. Yeah. And I went to Ireland as part of my, I spent a year traveling around Europe. Amazing. So traveling was yeah. very affordable for someone in your situation at the time. Because nowadays doing this is wow. not as easy. Really? I think so. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Well, I, I don't know a lot of travelers like this, but I know they're out there. Because I, I went to, okay, I went to uh, more, let's say, uh, countries with more, more less, less developed economies. But I also was in Holland and France, which are not cheap, I suppose, even back those days. Uh, yeah, and I was a, a poor student. Right. Wow, yeah. I was living. That's just an interesting. Yeah. How did I manage that? <laughs> you know, I, I, you're right. Yeah, I mean, but of course, well, you didn't have to worry about your cell phone and your internet bill. You know, that that's certainly not. I'm sure if you added, I'm sure if you took, I'm sure if I took both of those together, I would be able to afford a couple of international plane flights a year. Hmm, that's interesting. It's all you know. It's a good question because, uh, yeah, because one thing to travel in Turkey, another thing to travel in France and, and the Netherlands. One of the things hmm. that I've reasons why I wanted to start this. Huh. Podcast is because I feel like musicians who I meet, uh, they're they don't know how many things are possible, and hmm. things hmm. feel less possible now. I would say when to us, but this may be always the, the you know well back in the old days such and such was possible. But I think hmm. I think that for me hmm. things feel less possible. Like your story, I mean maybe I didn't live in hmm. I've never lived in New York or you know hmm. didn't grow up in New York, but. But this kind of activity is, is I don't know, it's, and I want people to be able to listen to this and sort of say, wow, I could do any, any part or all of that, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I mean, look, I, I think for me, the, let's see, what are the crucial elements? One, I w- well, for me, I was brought up with a very strong sense of who I was and where I was coming from. Yeah, well, you know, that's an interesting thing that a lot of people don't have. I noticed that with a lot of Jews, that, that they somehow, there's a kind of vague shadow that they don't know where. Well, I think that was, it know. was purposefully obfuscated by their parents and grandparents a lot. It with seems. the idea that they were sort of sparing them something. Well, for Holocaust survivors, I understand that. And I've heard stories in Canada of, like, really scary things that people well, sure. were just concealed. Their, their, their well, even my family, who was all here by the teens, I would say maybe even a little earlier. Right. Yeah. It was probably bad enough. Hmm. You know, 
I don't know. Wow. It's interesting. It's interesting. Because, see, on both my sides, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm the Canadian, remember, I have a Canadian side of the family, uh-huh. the Belarusians who went to, uh, who went to Quebec, to, to Montreal. That's your mom's side. Mom's side, yeah. yeah. And again, in our region, the relation with the Goyen was okay. It was okay. It was okay. There so was maybe, nothing. That might be a big, that might be a big part of that. Nothing to notice before we made that record. You guys were just like, somebody's got to do this. Yeah, we were it. And again, we, we knew the Klezmorm. It wasn't on the radar for us. Okay. And uh, and there was nobody else. Right. Then. So the recording happened uh, after the great concert, which was very successful. There were several smaller concerts with Taras, several concerts with Andy and me, which were always, you know, lovely. And it was, of course, a pleasure to play with him. Yeah. We had a very good rapport. Yeah, Imagine, yeah. we were rehearsing in this room. Right in this, right in this yeah, apartment. Very, How about fair. that? Yeah. That makes sense. And we had a very, very good rapport. And you guys are in lockstep on the record. It's great. Yeah, like I'm glad it mentally. still sounds that way. Yeah. It's, it sounds, it's, it's really cool. I, I just revisited it for the first time in a while. And it's, you know, one thing that I've noticed and is something that I'm sort of grasping at here is what is it about? I mean, I'm sure your idea of how you would play any of those tunes has changed drastically. The way I would play any of those tunes is really different from that. The way any of my clarinet friends would play mm-hmm. any of those tunes is extremely different from the way Andy approaches them. And it's and, and we might we might te- we might say, well, if we were teaching this, we wouldn't do. But man, it's a good record, though. Well, you know, when I look back at it now, and I've listened to it not that long ago, yeah, I would do certain things differently now, definitely. Um, but a lot of it, uh, let's say, the intuition that I had, I think, is correct. Well, the chronology, again, this, this, um, you know, it was very easy to do. It's very easy to do. Again, yeah. that's like the theme, it which was, is remarkable. I mean, but it takes all of this, all these forces to come together to make it easy, you know? Of course. I mean, we played some of these tunes for Dave Tarras before we recorded them. We took our instruments to Brooklyn. Yeah. And we played for him. Sure. But you um, had such a good, you had a good relationship, working relationship with him. Like, yes. It wasn't antagonistic. Not at all. I spent a lot of time in his apartment. Great. We'd listen to music together. That's great. He would tell me what he liked, what he didn't like, of what the different klezmer groups were doing at the time. <laughs> Man, that's so great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I was very relaxed. And, and I used to announce from time to time, he used to call me the professor. <laughs> well, so you sometimes know. when people were there, he would raise his finger and say, the professor should write about me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did. So now I do. <laughs> hopefully I will. So that was, that was great and easy and, you know, not, not, not pulling teeth at all. But it so happened that... Um, Two years after we did the recording, I got my first teaching position, uh-huh. which was in Princeton, okay. teaching Ottoman, you know, Ottoman uh, language and literature. Although I was trained as a Central Asianist, Ottoman was sort of my hobby, right? Because well, I, I grew up with Ottoman people. Yep, yeah. <laughs> I didn't succeed there in the long run for a variety of reasons, but 
um, it meant that I was being really pulled strongly out of the Jewish sphere into the Ottoman music and cultural sphere. And uh, so it was physically difficult to, to meet Statman. Occasionally we did some gigs together. Mm-hmm. And then gradually he became more religious. Yes. And it was just nice. I mean, he was, uh, you know, playing beautiful uh, Hasidic music for a while. Totally. I really liked it. But, you know, I was at that point spending the whole summer in Istanbul and learning Ottoman repertoire. And so we sort of drifted apart. And frankly, there was nobody else that I would be interested to play with at that time. Mm-hmm. There really was nobody else. And, and and were you? Did you keep abreast of the developments in Klezmer? Or well, let me tell you something. That in in the mid eighties, in eighty five, yeah, right. I'd done a solo concert. Yeah, okay. I'd already had a grant f- to to translate the treatise of Prince Kantemir from I was in National Endowment of the Humanities. Mm-hmm. But I kept up a bit with uh, playing cymbal. I was asked to do a solo concert in some of the Jewish center in Long Island. Did a very nice live recording of it. It was a very nice concert, oh, nicely attended. And that week when I came back, I thought, well, you know, this is very nice, but it's not going anywhere. Which? The, the Klezmer music. The Klezmer it really music, wasn't yeah. going anywhere. And there was no one to play with. And where I was really spending a lot of time with the Ottoman music, and I had wonderful teachers in Istanbul. And, right. and for various reasons, I lucked out that the best musicians were willing to teach me, the people that wouldn't teach Turkish students oh, were teaching me. So uh, I thought, well, I just can't. Why should I spend more time with this music? Yeah. And I thought, look, the American Jews, they're into their nostalgia. And I was hearing this, this to me, rather distasteful mixture of klezmer music and Yiddish song. So um, so that, to me, I didn't know what to, to make of that. It wasn't something I felt I could fit in with at all and wanted to. Um, and so I just forgot about for a while, for a number of years. Yeah. I just was more involved in Ottoman Turkish music. was in the summer of 1996. My wife, Judith, Judith Trigeshi, uh, were in Budapest, where she's from, and there was a party on one of the islands on the Danube, and suddenly I met the Budowitz group mm-hmm. with Walt Mahovlich and, and Josh Horowitz, Steve Greenman, uh, and I'd already met Bob Cohen and Christina Crowder, who mm-hmm. were playing the Nye Capella, and it... I was very impressed, and, uh, you know, they were very kind to me. They played for me, sat at the table and played for me. And, nice. and I was leading dancing with, with uh, I remember, with Hungarians and Serbs. I was leading Bulgar, and I just fit in kind of very naturally. You found a place uh, but I'm thinking about thought it, about it. Not at all, not at all. Yeah. And I remember my, well, Judith was joking. He says, you see, you find these things in Budapest. <laughs> 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 yeah, that makes sense, Budapest, and, that kind of place. That kind of place. And, and so as soon as I came back, I began getting phone of some Alicia Spiegels. And then I thought, you know, I really would like to play this music again. This, you know, at that point, in 96, I began to tune the cymbal, <laughs> and Alicia would come over dutifully every two weeks. We, oh, would, wow. we would spend uh, a night playing together. 
And I think I did one wedding with her, but mostly it was just rehearsing yeah. and learning repertoire. Yeah, I started playing, and at that point, Stephen Greenman, who I'd met in, uh, in Budapest, he began driving in from Cleveland. That's impressive. It's impressive. Yeah. It's a long drive. He stayed <laughs> with his grandmother in Brooklyn. Oh, well, there you go. So I was playing both with Alicia and then with Stephen. But at that period, I met Jeremy Heschelos. I mean, he was a gold mine. Right? Yeah, that was, that was, what, it was pretty clear. Yeah, because he was, he was articulate. I mean, Dave Tarras wasn't so articulate, but Tashilus, he'd been the Kapellmeister, you know, the first violinist, and he was from a, not from a klezmer family, actually, from an upper-class mm-hmm. family who studied in the conservatory in Lemberg, but ended up as a klezmer for a number of years, learned klezmer Lucian. He studied right, with the yeah. previous Kapellmeister, so he was anointed, anointed, you yeah, he was, and he was clearly dedicated to if he was transitioning to that from upper class. Background. Yes, yes, yes. It's a strange collection of things that uh, connection that put him there. And uh, when he came to when he left Poland and came to America, he became a poet and a journalist. So he was a man of words, mm-hmm. and he had a thick Yiddish accent, but excellent grammar and vocabulary. It was a lot of fun, uh, and he used to say, "If I." Can choose my weapon, I will choose grammar. <laughs> <laughs> it was never mind my accent. I, I know this language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and he was very tickled that, you know, that I would be asking him these things. And he was just, uh, I mean, he didn't, he couldn't play violin anymore. He was almost 90 years old. Right. But uh, he was giving me a perspective totally different than Dave Taras. Because he was somebody who came from a place that was already rather conservative that still had the old-style capella with the two violins and the cymbal, mm-hmm. n- no brass instruments. For and he never transitioned to the new style. No, no. And when he came to New York, he was a friend of Bayrish Katz, okay. who was a successful right, yeah. violinist, and Bayrish apparently asked him to play in his capella, so he would have been playing with Dave Taras and whatnot. Right. But he said no. Not interested. He didn't like what the Americans were listening to. Not a Bulgars man? Not at all. Not at all. And, you know, he totally, you know, for them, they lost the real Yiddishkeit of... Uh, That's so interesting. So through him, you know, it's like he was one of the guys from these ancient recordings speaking. Right. If I could have talked to Steiner, the violinist, you know, or Solinsky. Sure, yeah. So there he was, and it was an amazing perspective on mm-hmm. what the meaning of the music was. And I would play for him, he would give me his suggestions, we'd listen to all the old, old violin recordings we'd listen to. And I have him on tape giving his opinion of the different violinists. So, and I had Greenman, you know, Stephen was coming in playing with me, so it was hard to resist the temptation to start a capella, uh-huh. you know, and to make it a, you know, fiddle-oriented right. thing, you know. So we had Alicia and uh, Michael playing uh, second, and, mm-hmm. and for the recording we brought in Stu Brotman. It's, you've made very, very clear statements that, you know, someone could look at it as though... Well, he's doing this research and he wants to present Klezmer in this way, but it's also exactly what was happening to you at the time. You know, you yeah. made that record because you had an you had a new guy yeah. who you were excited about. I mean, this is what it is. It's like you're but, following the the inspiration. Yeah, if I hadn't met Dev Taras, I would never have this record. Right. And if I hadn't met Yeremia Heschelis, I never would have had Chavisa. Mm-hmm. I think so. It makes sense to me. I mean, that's... That sounds like what art, how artists work, you know? Yeah, well, I always was an artist. That's how I... Sure, you know. sure. So, uh, I mean, I, I am a scholar, but in this case, you know, since there were so many artistic 
influences impinging. I had no intention of doing research in classroom music. I was just yeah. playing it, and you know, I wasn't thinking of it as an academic topic at all. Now, you know? that's so funny because when I met you, I was like, "This here's the serious guy," you know, and that would have been three years later, two thousand three right. or something. Right. I was like. You know, but this is a different thing. It's great. I hadn't been really... You know, again, a lot of information just came my way. Well, that's clear, yeah. But, but I didn't sit down, you know, like, go through all the tunes in the Beregovsky collection, all the tunes in Kostakovsky, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, really make rigorous comparisons uh, and integrate, you know, different sort of historical issues, mm -hmm. which I hadn't really tried to do before. Um, and that made me think more seriously about dance as well. So the so, dance becomes more... Well, two things. That, that There's the dance issue, which I owe to uh, several things. Again, I was de facto teaching dance. Right. But in the midst of this, uh, uh, I was then getting a theoretical orientation because of my study of gesture. Right. So that's one thing. That's one theme, mm -hmm. which developed... Uh, by 2012 or 2011, I designed a course called Gesture uh -huh. that I taught in Abu Dhabi. Okay. I taught it for three years. Oh, cool. Where we started friends learning about Yiddish gesture. So mm -hmm. all my Arab and Persian and Indian mm -hmm. students were reading about Yiddish gesture, and, uh, and, uh, and which interested them very much. Well, I mean, they're coming from cultures where that's not a foreign concept as opposed to, like, white Americans. Exactly. <laughs> it, it, the, the slowest ones were the North Americans. Yeah, of course. They were. They didn't contribute much to the. To well, the they're, they're, we're brought up to be very scared of that kind of stuff. <laughs> Good point. Exactly, and of course that inhibits um, the performance of klezmer music properly, mm -hmm. and it destroys Jewish dance. Sure. If you if you don't know what you can do with your upper body, you're not a Jewish dancer. Oh, I mean, it's, I, so we, we played yesterday with this. Uh, what's his name? Uh, I can't remember his name still, but. Uh, he, but he, he was a professional Jewish band leader and dancer in Philly in the 60s oh. and 70s. And Hank yeah. just knows him. I'm sure he's in the book, but uh, huh. he's also on Facebook. Yeah. And uh, yeah, he's probably not, he's not, you know, he's not, he's not, he's, he's not that old. Hmm. And um, he led, he did a, he did a Bruges dance with his wife and it was, it was very expressive. I mean, I wouldn't. I, I don't know what you would. What I mean, I wonder what you would think of it. But it was the thing that was. It it was it was unafraid and it was expressive. And he did a mazinka, and he called it out like he would have back in the day. Hey, what, what's his name? I'm gonna, we're going to find well, this what, out. We'll, we'll, we'll find, we'll find out. it out. Thank you. That's great. And um, and uh, he yeah he was, it was it was there you I can feel it. I, I noticed the difference because he whether what whether whether the gestures were sort of traditionalist or not the energy of understanding that that was important was totally there and you could feel the hmm. energy pick up from I mean yeah that's great it was cool that's really it's great. cool I'll I'll find his name well, we can do it after we'll do it but, after but don't don't forget make a note to no, yourself that's important because that's the most that's the kind of pantomime. Sure. Most Jewish dance is not a pantomime, but that's that's a very particular kind of you know, uh -huh. Jewish sure, dance. Sure, right. Yeah. So, yeah, so the studying gesture, and, then, and again, this was the best place for me to teach it. Absolutely. Where I had Middle Eastern and African and Indian students. Yeah. And I had them, in the first part of the course, I had them do research in their own language because mm -hmm. they had several speakers, you know, of Amharic and Malayalam and Arabic and mm -hmm. Persian. And I got a bunch of very good papers on the whole and films. Oh, great. You know, the films. And at the end of it, it was uh, obvious to me that Yiddish, 
visually is not a, a Northern European language. Grammatically, it is. Ah, what a great concept. That's wonderful. Visually, it is a, it's like a Semitic or Iranian language. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's so interesting. That's, it's an un- incontrovertible fact. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's great. It has nothing to do with either Polish or German or Russian. Mm-hmm. It has much more to do with Arabic, Persian, even Malayalam, you know, in southwest India. Because they're Syriac Christians. Oh, okay. So there's a close contact with Syria in ah, antiquity. Okay, yeah. And one of my Christian s- students had their gestures that are really Yiddish gestures. That they really? Did. Yes. That's so great. <laughs> yes. What a perfect place to be. So this was, exactly. this, is, this like this kind of characterizes. And again, you know, look at it's like you know it strikes me as you mm. and another co- giant cosmopolitan melting pot, and sort of finding the best expression of that meeting of different cultures now as a sort of leading it you know creating the co- the context for it as a teacher but i learned a lot yeah i learned a lot it really helped to form my ideas so while i was teaching this course i was writing the chapter on dance right with a big chapter and a big section on gesture yeah you know so this was it couldn't have been better and i couldn't have done it in america that occur to you about you know like sort of the necessary components of being able to actually play this stuff well as an instrumentalist well first of all it depends which repertoire you're looking at primarily mm-hmm. so you've got to decide like are you looking primarily at the American repertoire or are you looking primarily at the European repertoire probably there'll be a blend of both yeah I mean they, 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 they make sort of different demands mm-hmm. the old world classroom music is often referring to liturgy but very quickly and very indirectly. Yeah. But it's it's something, it's a given that all the Jews, of course, would understood and, and heard. Yeah, you know? sure. So just a few notes give you a certain grounding, you know, within a Jewish uh, liturgical background. Then it's blended in some other phrase, which is not coming from that. And it's this blend of the religious and the secular, which really makes classroom music. Oh, I think so, too. That's what the European... Klezmer music was. It was this. And, of course, we Ashkenazim are the only Jewish culture that got this idea of blending the religious and the secular. Really? Yeah. All the others, it's either one or the other. Okay. 
you see words with us. We took this this bold step mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, of blending them. It's especially true in the klezmer repertoire, which of course mm -hmm. is unique. Other Jews don't have a distinctive instrumental repertoire. Only yeah. Islashkenaz invented that. Sure. So um, and of course, but to do this properly, you've got to have a little grounding in the religious repertoire. So that's kind of basic. I mean, you you can't blend these two things if you only know one of the two things. You right. have to know something of the religious side of it and something of the secular side of it. Yeah. You, you know, one of the things you, you, what you just mentioned was steeping yourself, having, having some kind of cultural, con, larger context for this stuff. And you did, you know, yeah. you grew up in, you know, you had enough contact. So it's interesting. It's interesting for me because I don't think I really had that. Mm -hmm. You know, well, I mean, what I had was basic level uh, conservative synagogue upbringing. I knew a mm -hmm. fair amount of prayers. Mm -hmm. Um and I knew a fair amount, and I guess my, my, my cantor was a trained opera singer, so there was some chazanus, but he wasn't a chazan, he was, mm -hmm. he was a cantor. You know, he, just, he sang prayers, but he sang them well, and he, mm -hmm. he knew so he could do stuff, because he had a really highly trained voice. But when I first came to this music, it was immediate, you know, I, I, I have, hmm. this, I talk to people, when people explain this experience to me, and a lot of people share this just immediate feel like you're coming home. I think it helped for me personally that I had enough jazz training that I was able to play well enough to get to people to be interested in having me play more. So it was it was very easy for me to... I, I got into the professional side of the world and just played a lot. Once you start playing this music a lot, well, then you're going to start learning well, stuff. Well, look, you know, the fact is that non-Jewish people like Kurt Bjorling and like uh, Patty Farrell... Mm -hmm. They, they figured out a lot of the basic musical expression without having that, that yeah. added, added aid, you know, of a synagogue background. Yeah, it's interesting. It's very interesting. So um, this is a good way to yeah. uh, think about one of the other questions that I had, which was, what, what do you think, like, this, what would you like to see this music look like? I mean, what are the things that, that you like that are happening, and what are things that you would like to see more of, and, you know, for this music, what how it's played and also where it exists in our culture or in the world or whatever. Well, let me, let me say something related to that. Sure. Is that I've been doing this long enough, so I see that how this has fit into certain historical eras. Yeah, I bet. And that's, that's a tough one because, you know, um, it's hard to go against the larger, like the bigger picture. That makes sense. Right? So I see that the late 70s, and as we've heard ad nauseum, that it was a period of roots. You know, it was a period yeah. that because of the African-American sort of belated liberation in American society, other minority groups began to look inward a bit and try to define themselves a bit better in, in the American picture. And so, you know, those that had the advantage of access to the old country, like, like uh, Greek Americans and Irish Americans, had... You know, a certain advantage that Jewish Americans didn't have. Sure. Plus, we have the sort of the distraction of Israel. Yeah, right. Well, in terms of Ashkenazic culture, for sure. Yeah. No, I I think of Israel as much more than a distraction, of course. But yeah. Uh, but in terms of the Ashkenaz tradition, yep. it largely is a distraction. Right. And so that was you know very harmful, really, for the younger generation of American Jews who were exposed to that. Somehow, I was like immunized. Yeah, I think it, I think we've we've covered why that was. It makes sense. <laughs> yeah, and I know I was involved with the Hashemer Sa'ir, you know, and I spoke Hebrew. Okay, you know, but to me, you know, the Israelis 
artistically, I wasn't impressed with their music or their dance. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. You know, it's like to me, they say, oh, Nebuch, these are also Jews, but you know, what can you do? <laughs> <laughs> That's less of a factor now, but it was a big factor back in the 80s, you know, 70s. Oh, yeah. It was a big factor. It helped to, to actually kill off the, the less of the classical music because it had less of a, less of a space right. in the Jewish simchas. The other thing we should uh, integrate into this is um, the 90s as the, the decade of the Jews. Tell me more about that. I don't know if you've heard this concept no, before. No, I've not heard this concept. Okay. I, I was at a conference in Budapest at the, um, I think, the Central European University where there was an Italian Jewish sociologist whose name I'm, I'm stumbling over right now. Mm-hmm. But she's quite brilliant. And she it was about the position of the Jews in modern Europe. And... Uh, she gave a paper where she talked about the 90s as a decade of the Jews. So this this must have been around 2000 or 2001. Wow, so she was really saying... And she was very smart. She said, this, this just happened, uh-huh. and this is just ending. And, of course, you remember that, I mean, the Holocaust consciousness, the awareness of the Holocaust, sort of hit home in the 90s. Schindler's List came Schindler's out. Schindler's List came out. The museum opened in the U.S., Yes, and then there was the period also, by not, not to forget, the peace negotiations between Israel oh, right, and the Palestinians absolutely. that were very hopeful for many people in Europe. Certainly in a mainstream setting, it was the most hopeful it had been. Yeah. Now, I was in Israel for some of that, actually, mm-hmm. but I was in Israel mostly for the, for the collapse. Afterwards. Afterwards, yeah. and the second intifada, and... Um, and because the European reaction to that was usually not to blame Arafat, but to blame the Israelis, uh, to, you know, to say, you know, oh, you know, why do we have to deal with these Jews? They cause so much trouble. <laughs> well, and, you know, <laughs> back to the old days. <laughs> and I, 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 somewhere I have notes on, well, I took notes, took a journal in, 19, in 1999 when I was with Kurt and Kalman in the Netherlands. And then shortly afterwards, I did a workshop in Paris and I took some notes on what people were telling me. I remember there was a German violinist who, who I think may have left the scene since then, a pretty girl with long blonde braids. And this was after the First Intifada, or around the time of the First Intifada. And she said, you know, it's not the same anymore, that people are looking at me as though I'm doing something bad, that I'm playing this Jewish music and yeah. it's just making trouble. It's just, you know... Right, right. It's not a good thing. And I... Yeah. It makes so much sense, and it's good to think about, and it really does feel the 90s were that way, and things ended abruptly, maybe around then. 2001. Of course, we had the 2001 we, attack here. Yeah, absolutely, which also changed everything. And I was thinking about like what era we are now in now, That's and, what, and yeah. what role, I mean, what I know from let's say, the more activist sides of the Jewish community that I'm aware of, there's this really big push to include Jews of color and to sort of center their voices, and that includes Mizrahi, that includes African-American Jews, that includes, or African Jews. Okay, this, this and, is a... And so then what does yeah. the role of us, yeah. mm. what's the role of us as, as proponents of Yiddish culture? It's a very good question. It's a very good question. And um, let's say my... Uh, see, I guess my solutions in Israel were a little different than I would have in the States. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Mm, but of course, you know, in, in Israel, of, you know, the, the Ashkenazim are not such an overwhelming majority yes. as they are in the U.S., as we are in the U.S. Uh, 
But, you know, because of the politics of Israel, the Ashkenazim, let's say, are in a way the least expressed, able to express our culture. In Israel. In Israel. It's as a, Ashkenazi as Jews. As Ashkenazi Jews. It, it can only be less. Now it's more possible than it was, let's say, 20 years ago or sure. so. It's actually more possible. But it tends to be associated with, uh, usually with the ultra-Orthodox and mm-hmm. the Hasidim. What do is our experiences and our culture, how can we... What, do, what, what does it make sense to present that in a way now? Okay, so listen, uh, first, again, you, you need a diagnosis before you could have a, a remedy. So the diagnosis, I see, is that, that uh, the, the facts on the ground is that the Ashkenazim are the overwhelming majority of North American Jews. Yes. And um, the, uh, again, that's the first fact. The second fact is that um, we're the only Jewish community that historically created a distinctive Jewish music for many different genres, both mm-hmm. religious and secular. This is unique. Mm-hmm. Nobody else had done that. Um, so, the and the fact is also that North America is the demographic center of Ashkenazic Jewry today. Absolutely. On the whole, the only community that has any chance of preserving or developing Ashkenazic music and dance are North Americans, whether Americans or Canadians. Right. So. Um, uh, that to me is the primary responsibility of klezmer musicians. It's really mostly Ashkenazim that have cared about Sephardi expressive culture. The Sephardi themselves haven't done much. Okay. With us, with the Sephardim and the Ashkenazim, there actually was a meeting point, which was Moldova. Right. You know, there there was mm-hmm. contact, mm-hmm. and in a way, I could imagine certain kinds of uh, an imaginative kind of uh, construction of things musically yeah. in which the Turkish element will play an important role, right. the Greek and Turkish element. And in a way, I'm sorry that I've been a little bit too conservative because I would have been the obvious person to... Well, it's actually <laughs> funny because I was thinking about how yeah. um, you you know, you know met Dave Tarras, you made a record, <laughs> you met Heschelis, you made a record, and now you've done, recently you've done this big Moldovan study, so maybe it's yeah. time to think about a new band. Wow. kind of fits in the chronology a little bit that'd be amazing that'd be amazing so maybe maybe this is maybe it's coming maybe 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 if i if i live that long you know if i I, because i'm planning another book sure so uh it it could be and of course the book is going to deal with uh, the moldavian jewish heritage going back to the 18th century you know and there are interesting um sources right you know i started to work with deborah strauss actually on one of these manuscripts yeah, it's it's an interesting time to be to be playing this music. It's an interesting mm. time for me to have sort of maybe come. Of, I feel like I've sort of come of age in this music, and to sort of enter in, into my second decade of playing it. Great. And mm. and what that and and what what it looks like out there and what needs to happen and what feels possible and it's super interesting. Well, look, I think I, I'm really glad that. You know, you're really, from my point of view, very young. Yeah, totally. You know, and so it's interesting that you're you're looking at this in a very sort of thoughtful, and at the same time committed way. I mean, mm-hmm. you're a musician primarily, so um, you know, I'm I'm glad to speak with you about these things. Come to the position that that klezmer music is a very important part of the of the Jewish you know, musical heritage, and that it. As I say, it has, you know, if it's a fusion music, mm-hmm. like the Yiddish language, is a fusion language, and that it already has a lot of our historical experience in it, embedded in it, 
But in, in fact, we've shown that, uh, that different elements in the fusion sort of develop differently at different times and places. And uh, if it's going to be creative, then I could see certain both European and Oriental and religious elements developing in different ways. Mm -hmm. But you have to be somewhat in command of these things to do it, to do it in an interesting way, and hopefully it, it can happen. Um, now, I, I would rather, I personally think the Ashkenazic, see, this is a question, okay? We have a long Jewish continuity as a culture. Now, the first thing to, to, that has to be inculcated for American Jews is to understand that we are a national group, in addition to being a religion, because American Jews have been brainwashed for already 200 years. And, and I totally understand them, that America was a racist country, but it offered religious freedom. Mm -hmm. So a Jew coming here in the 19th century would say, uh, especially at the time when there was still slavery, so there's no advantage to being a race, to being a, a national group. Au contraire, it gets into a lot of trouble. Mm -hmm. But to be a religion, George Washington wrote to the synagogue in, you know, in, in Newport. And when I was there, I saw the letter George Washington sent yeah, to yeah. preserve it, giving religious freedom you know, to the Jews. This is, this is very important. But it means that for Jews who are secular, if they're, especially if they're radically secular, uh, Judaism, Jewishness, means nothing to them. Right. Because it's just a religion that they don't believe in, so what's the point? It has no, no meaning. Um, and even if you are religious, it's important to understand that there's always been this dialogue between the pure religious, religious aspect of Jewishness and the actual historical experience of Jews. And that, that's, you know, it's not a conflict, but that they emphasize rather different things. And Jews are historically very important in world civilization. Let's not forget it. We're one, again, I always refer to Karl Jasper as in the Axial Age of History, where the Jews are part of the five, only five Axial Age civilizations that transform the world, mm -hmm. along with the Persians, the Greeks, the Indians, and the Chinese. Mm -hmm. Now, one can say, okay, it's possible to be a has-been civilization. <laughs> yeah, it's 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, you guys transformed the world, but what have you done lately? Okay? So you can say that with the Greeks, yeah. perhaps. You know, that's, right. uh, okay, yes, we know, we know what your ancestors did long, long ago, but what, you know, what have you done recently? Whereas with the Jews, I don't, I don't think that could be said fairly. Mm -hmm. we're, we're not such a quiescent, dormant bunch of people. And, and so I personally think that it's important to retain uh, the sense of Jewish identity, not total separateness, but just a, a, a discrete existence mm -hmm. to allow the creative process to continue. And again, I think by now we've seen that coming to America doesn't mean we've come to the promised land where all good things are going to manifest themselves. It's pretty obvious that many other things are manifesting themselves. <laughs> Which are not anomalies; they're really integral mm -hmm. to what America was, you know, has been, and, and is at the moment. Absolutely. Right. So, uh, I mean, just we need to we need to think of what really is our potential. You know, and again, Jews are not saints. Jews have done terrible and stupid things. You know, but nevertheless, Jews have other potentials that are very positive. And in this case, we were talking about expressive culture, mm -hmm. but music and dance. There's actually something um, unique and, and very human and expressive about the decisions we made, you know, in music and dance. And here I have to say it's primarily Ashkenazic Jews. Yeah. Right. That, that's just the historical fact. 
we're now 80% of the Jewish people worldwide. Before the Shoah, we were 90%. <laughs> so it's important to have a sense of perspective that we've assimilated, we Ashkenazim assimilated many other Jews in Europe. I mean, that we, you know, that, and it's hard to know what they contributed, you know, but they, they had been there. There have been Rus-speaking Jews in Eastern Europe for many centuries. Earlier than that, there were Greek-speaking Jews in Ukraine and in other parts of Eastern Europe. We all became Ashkenazim eventually. So uh, it's, a, you know, it's a rich culture. It, 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 some things you could criticize about, in some ways, some of the gender relations. I prefer the Sephardim. Mm-hmm. I think they probably made wiser decisions historically mm-hmm. than we did. Um, also, they've had a longer history of, of integrating worldly right. concerns. And the problem with the Ashkenaz culture is that we've tended to be in a situation historically where we can only express ourselves uh, within a very religious context, and in actually increasingly religious context over the early centuries. Or we had the polar opposite, you know, the total rejection of tradition and rejection of religion. And it's, you know, it's kind of a, after a while, it becomes pathological. That Ashkenazim are, we've become a nation, a group of extremes, of total antitheses. Right, but maybe this klezmer music is is a return to somewhere in the middle. That's one of the great things about it, that I didn't realize that at first, but as I wrote the book and did the later research, I understood that's what's so distinctive, that it has those secular and religious elements that Jews feel comfortable with. Mm-hmm. On a certain level, they understood we're all Jews. There are so many you know, potentials, so many possibilities that haven't been isn't developed it. I think, you know, that, uh, you know, Jews, in a sense, once we remember what is a Jew, you know, and what, <laughs> what a Jew has been, and are not running away from it and trying to, you know, camouflage ourselves. Right. Um, in a way that we're natural interlocutors. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the world, with everybody. I mean, I saw that from my experience in Abu Dhabi. It was it was obvious, and uh, I saw it in my experience working for the European Union, where I was the guy facilitating communication between the Turks and the Greeks, and the Iranians and the Turks, and the Lebanese and the Tunisians, and so forth. I mean, this is a classic Jewish uh, yeah. role, you know, in, in many ways, um, and you know, we still have this in the music and to some extent in the dance. That uh, why not use it? <laughs> I think that's it. I think we did it. That's a perfect place to end. Wonderful. Great. Great. Well, thanks so much for doing this. This was really exciting. Thank you, Dan. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't have done this or thought this way if you hadn't come and, you know, stimulated me to ask him about this. Awesome. Great. All right. That's it for today's episode. How about all that? I know I really learned a lot talking to Zev, and I hope that you all enjoyed it as much as I did. It was a real honor to get to hear about his story and to share some of my thoughts and get his take on where we are today as a community and what possibilities we have for our little klezmer scene. So that was really exciting. All right, this is the end of our first little mini season. So after this episode, we're going to take a little break while I get the episodes ready 
that I recorded at Close Canada. I think they all came out really well, and I can't wait to share them with you all, which will be sometime starting in October. So that's it. That's all I got for this week. Uh, Thanks so much to the Feinstein Center for American Jewish History for helping out with this inaugural season of the Radiant Others podcast. And thanks to all my friends who encouraged me to make it and to everybody who gave any of the audio help. Uh, And thanks to Michael and Pete and Zev for their stories. It's been a pleasure to hear them and to get to talk to them and to present it to all of you. So stay tuned for more. We are going strong and there's going to be a lot more exciting episodes and conversations coming up soon. All right. Well, that's all I got. Thanks so much for listening and good Shabbos.